0: Hey, welcome everyone. Fourth and final session of our newcomers orientation and the fourth lesson is on page 18. And I have a copy of the lesson coming for anybody who doesn't have have one. But we've looked at in the first three lessons, the fact that we try to be an intentional church. A lesson 2 was a healthy church and then lesson 3 last week was a growing church meaning that we seek to, yes, grow numerically, but primarily, because we're a healthy church, uh, disciple the people that God brings to us. And we talked about the ways in which we try to do that, helping people learn, love, and live, the three objectives that are in our mission statement. Today, in the final lesson, top of page 18, you see that we seek to be a committed church. And we will explain in this lesson what it is we're asking you to commit to if you become a member of CBC. So we've given you this information, and then the idea is, as we said in week one, for you to prayerfully consider if this is the place where God would have you to grow and serve. But now in this last lesson, uh, I'll tell you at the end what the next steps are if you decide you want to, to move forward. Okay? So that first uh, few pages, starting on page 18, are, as you see on 18 and 19, it's a letter from our leadership team just encouraging uh, you to consider Uh, our church uh, for membership and growing and serving so we're not going to go over that and then on the next two pages 20 and 21 it's just a a parable really of two families one who has aligned themselves with a church and another that has not and how that affects a family not being uh, aligned to a particular church so i'm not going over that either you can read that on your own i will start on page 22 because beginning on page 22, we have a number of commitments that we ask you to make if you join our church. When we get to the end of today, in fact, you'll see a form that when you join the church, you actually sign that say, I've read these commitments and I, and I agree to them. So it's important that you know what the commitments are. And I. there are several pages here. We're not going to read every line. I'm not going to read every line. I encourage you to do that. And if you have any questions about any of these, of course, uh, please ask them either today or uh, going forward. But I want to highlight some of the more uh, important points out of these commitments. So on page 22, the first of these commitments is commitment to peacemaking and reconciliation. You see that. So we are saying when you join our church you are committing to being a peacemaker and to engage in peacemaking Uh, sin being what it is sinners being who they are there are going to be rifts that occur uh, between people personally in any organization and that includes the church as well the bible has a lot to say about uh, disagreement uh, about the potential for disunity uh, reminding and even commanding Ephesians four three for example make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit. So uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of dissension that's recorded in the Bible, but there are also instructions about how to mend those broken relationships, and that's what these two pages are about. Page twenty two, you see uh, the subheading personal peacemaking. So that's between you and between uh, someone else, and. If you've got an issue with them, they've got an issue with you, then the Bible gives instructions about going to them and seeking reconciliation with them. If you're the offender, then you acknowledge the offense. You ask for forgiveness, and uh, a believer grants that forgiveness, and you're able to move on. Uh, If you're the offended and someone has sinned against you, uh, but they aren't acknowledging it, then the Bible also says go to them in that case as well. In both cases, it puts the onus on us to go. And so when you have two parties, an offender and an offended, they should actually run into each other on their way, because Matthew five, twenty-three and twenty-four, Matthew five, twenty-three and twenty-four has has it going one direction, and Matthew eighteen and verse fifteen has it going the other direction, the offender and the offended. So in both cases you go. Now, uh, it's it's not just you got hacked off about something somebody did. Uh, Because as a matter of maturity, the Bible teaches that in 1 Corinthians 6, that we should be able to overlook things that are uh, offenses to us. Uh, So when you need to reconcile, it's primarily over the issue of sin. Someone has sinned against you, you've sinned against them, not you just don't like something. Now, if there's something somebody did or does that is just really annoying you personally and offending you, like, say, me which I'm perfectly capable of doing. <coughs> then it's it's a matter of wisdom, practical wisdom, to seek to get that straightened out and to uh, approach the person in a, in a loving way about that. But when we talk about reconciliation, we're talking primarily about sin that you've committed or has been committed against you. And there's the personal variety, but then there are... Hey, Mark, thanks. So we've got uh, some back here. Thanks for doing that. Anybody else need a lesson? You guys need a lesson right here. So... Yeah, good deal. Anybody else? Everybody good? Hey, you're the man. Anybody else? Mark's got a bunch of them here. Look at that. What do you got? Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. And so at the bottom of page 22, there is a assisted peacemaking when two parties can't come together. At the bottom there, we say, when two of us cannot resolve a conflict privately, we seek the mediation of wise people in our church and listen humbly to their counsel. If our dispute is with a church leader, we'll look to other leaders assistance, When informal mediation does not resolve a dispute, we'll seek formal assistance from our church leaders or people they appoint, and we'll submit to their counsel and correction. But notice at the top of page 23, when we have a business or civil legal dispute with another Christian or with the church, we'll make every reasonable effort to resolve the conflict within the body of Christ through biblical mediation or arbitration rather than going to civil court. Now, let me just stop there. Uh, it's really important that you understand. Notice how that's worded. We will make every reasonable effort. And it may be you know, that somebody's a member of the church, or they're not a member of the church, but they're in the church, and you uh, have a business contract with them. You have them put siding on your house as an illustration. And you pay them some money up front because they're a brother in the Lord and you know you can trust them. And so you paid them $5,000 or $10,000, and they don't show up to do the work. Uh, well, now what? Obviously, you want your money back, and you go to them for your money back, and you try to resolve it, and you try to resolve it through these means. But if the person's not going to cough up the money, then you have every right to go to court and get the get the money from them. Okay? So we're not saying you can't go to court. We're saying that that'll be a last resort, and you'll exhaust every, make every reasonable effort to do it in these ways. So that's one. You can go to court and there may be times where you you have to do that, even against somebody who's a professing uh, believer. Or against the church, heaven forbid, if the church was not willing to resolve whatever the issue was. Um, So you you can do that, this doesn't forbid that. But then the other thing is, please note, these are civil issues, not criminal issues. Uh, So if it's a criminal matter, then we need to get the authorities involved in that and whether that's a criminal matter involving somebody in the church or the church itself if the church was you know churches have been in the headlines about covering up sex abuse or things like that and if something like that happened then the authorities need to get in get involved in in that so that's what we're talking about civil we're asking you to prioritize trying to get it straightened out outside of the courts but then if the outside the courts uh, can't resolve it, then you have every right to, uh, to go to court. Now, where would you get this biblical mediation or arbitration? Uh, if you notice down at the very bottom, uh, page 23, there's a footnote, 14, and it says, One resource for Christian mediation and legally binding arbitration is the Institute for Christian Conciliation. There actually is a ministry called Peacemaker Ministries, and Peacemaker Ministries actually runs this thing. And the guy who started it, Ken Sandy, uh, is both an accountant and an attorney. And uh, he started, in addition to Peacemaker, this Institute for Christian Conciliation. And as you see there, they've got people who can uh, arbitrate a, an issue and structure it so that it's legally binding on, on both parties, but it's outside of the court. So that's one way that could happen. All right? You guys have any questions as we go? don't hesitate next page page 24 we have a commitment to preserving marriage that commitment includes training in marriage Uh, just a few weeks ago i ended a series on marriage in this hour the second hour 10 weeks called marriage matters and those the audio and the and the notes for that are on our website if you didn't hear them but we do. I've done marriage series uh, numerous times throughout the years. We'll continue to do that because uh, we know that the most important human relationship on earth is the marriage relationship, and sin being what it is, sinners being who they are, issues arise, and we regularly need to be reminded about what marriage is and how we're to pursue it as husband and wife. So we preserve marriages through this uh, instruction and training, but there are times where people don't listen, believe it or not. Uh, and as much as you try to train and instruct from God's word, people don't listen. And then uh, marriages get in uh, severe difficulties, so much so that one or both parties is looking to dissolve the marriage. And we are about preserving marriages. So what does the Bible teach about dissolving a marriage? It's, it's our understanding that the Bible teaches two conditions under which a divorce could be biblically justified. One is adultery, and the other is abandonment. Uh, One of the parties leaves. So uh, in uh, Matthew 19, Jesus says uh, that divorce is not permitted, quote, except it be for marital unfaithfulness. And then in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, Paul, who wrote that, says, if you're married to an unbeliever and the unbeliever is pleased to stay with you, then remain married. But if the unbeliever departs, then the believer is not under any obligation. That's what that's what he says. Now you say, well, what if I'm married to a believer who departs? Uh, well, if the if the professing, you might be married to a professing believer who departs. But a professing believer who departs without biblical justification is sinning with a high hand before God, and it may or may not be that they're a believer. So I don't assume that if someone is going to directly violate God's commands by leaving their family that they're a that they're a believer um, so 1 Corinthians 7 applies to the situation of someone and Paul assumes that the only person who would leave a marriage is an unbeliever without grounds so if that person leaves then the other party is not under obligation so adultery and abandonment now Uh, there are situations where you don't have either of those exactly but you've got uh, abuse going and most often my experience is you've got a wife who's suffering some kind of abuse from her husband Uh, and verbal abuse is very difficult to live with but the most immediately dangerous and heinous is physical abuse and that has happened from time to time as well as unbelievable as it sounds in a, in a church setting and when that happens my counsel is one get out of the house get to safety and we will help you with that so our church if a woman comes to me and says that she is in danger in her home then our church will our leadership team will help her get out of the house we'll pay for her to get out we'll pay for a place for her to stay whatever we got whatever we got to do so one get to safety get your children to safety uh, and then my own view is is that over time, if the if the husband is not repentant, and it is not absolutely clear that this house has become a safe place, that he's abandoned that marriage. And if if a woman were to divorce an abusive husband under those circumstances, our church would not take any action with with that. Uh, so that's sort of you know there are two reasons: adultery, abandonment, and then like two a. You know, uh, as a as a form of abandonment. Uh, but we want to make it clear that we take marriage very seriously. And if your marriage is having uh, difficulty, then you need to seek help. Seek help uh, from friends, brothers, and sisters in the church, the leadership of the church, to get it resolved. And just like on the previous pages, we're to reconcile in our personal relationships. Well, obviously that applies to our marriage relationships, too. Now, one of the saddest things, one of the most heartbreaking things for me, honestly, as a pastor over the years, is to have a handful of couples over the years who, after hearing me say this, after hearing it preached, after hearing it taught for all these years, somehow it just doesn't apply to them. And then when something happens in their marriage and they don't like it, and it's not adultery, and it's not abandonment, they just don't like the way things are going. They have a midlife crisis or, you know, whatever the, the deal is. You know, and I just want to, you know, I never did have an opportunity to have any fun. You know, we got married so young. I'm not even sure if I married the right person. This is the kind of stuff I hear. Okay? I'm not even sure if I married the right person. Well, if the person is, you know, hasn't committed adultery and they haven't abandoned you and you're married to them, then you're married to the right person. That's your only option, biblically, okay? That's your only option and then to, by God's grace, then grow in it and through it. I mean, It's very clear scripturally, and yet the truth is as sinners, we want to do what we want to do. And one of the most heartbreaking things is to see a handful of couples go and do that, and then to break off their their marriages. That is defying what God says, and you need to know at the outset that God takes marriage that seriously. So you don't have an option of breaking up your marriage outside of adultery or abandonment. Yes. So, um, what do you do in all circumstances Is the person asked to leave the church? Or that will be um, that will be in the next few pages. Oh, That's, that's all right. No, it's a good question. So, what happens if you defy what God says? Ah, let me recommend you don't do that. <laughs> but in the pages to follow, there is uh, there is something about that. All right. So that's uh, commitment to peacemaking and preserving marriages, page twenty-six protecting our children and the main portion of this that we want you to know is that no one can serve in ministry with our children and ministry with children is uh, under 18 so in our junior high senior high our elementary our nursery our toddlers in none of that can anyone serve unless they've gone through you see the first bullet point there We do not allow anyone to work with our youth unless he or she has taken our child protection training course. We have a course on that. We've got a manual for the things that can be done, can't be done. We've got a policy for how many people have to be in a room, for how bathroom breaks are taken, um, for safety purposes so that there uh, is no abuse and that there's no accusation. Uh, There can be no uh, accusation of abuse that could Withstand scrutiny. Now, anybody can accuse anything, right? But can it stand up to scrutiny if we follow our, if we follow our policy? The answer is no, because there's always somebody around. Uh, when we replaced all the doors in this building, as we had to do, like that door, uh, we had to replace all of them when we bought this building a couple of years ago because those are two-hour fire-rated doors, and the ones that were in here originally were only an hour and a half. So it was like $25,000. But that was required by fire code. All right. But when we replaced them, we made sure that all of them had windows in. Them. And that's on purpose. That's part of our policy as well. That nobody can be in an enclosed room uh, with a child, you know, by themselves. So we stipulate in that policy that our workers have our volunteers have to be trained in uh, as to how many people have to be in there, as I say, how the bathroom breaks, how transportation can happen to an event. So you don't have one you don't have one volunteer with one kid taking them an, uh, to an event because who knows what diversions can happen there. And again, it's not usually that something actually happens. It's an accusation can be made that something happened and now you're unprotected. So it protects the volunteer and uh, protects the children, of course, as, as well. Now, We are are serious about this, and it causes some difficulty because it means you got to have enough people, you know, to to man and woman, the things that you do, but it's important. And let me give you an illustration of how important it is. Uh, At our parent church years ago, we developed uh, this policy. I actually personally developed the policy, taught our children's staff on it, and we implemented it. We were a few years into the, the policy, and... Uh, at our parent church, they did and actually still do. They hold their midweek children's program, Awana. you familiar with Awana? They have Awana. But they don't have it at the church building. They have it two doors down at Summit Elementary School in Flat Rock. They let us use the building. They still do. So they have the adult uh, Bible study on Wednesday nights at the building. But they have the Awana program two doors down. So the kids get dropped off. Parents are supposed to come over. Well, nobody can work with the kids if they haven't been through the through the policy. One of the AWANA leaders comes to me and says, hey, we've got this guy. He's been bringing his daughter, and but he just hangs around. He doesn't. I've told him we've got the Bible study for the adults, but he just hangs around the program. And he not only hangs around, but then he just gradually starts to get involved a little bit and so on. So I've talked to him. What do we do? I said, I'll, I'll talk to him. So I talked to him. I said, hey, we've got this policy. It's for the protection of our children, including your your daughter we got the the study but you can't stay he was he was upset he got so upset he didn't come back um i didn't hear from or about them for a few years a couple years later i get a phone call at the church it's from uh flat rock schools and they asked me if i knew this family and somehow they had connected that family to our church and i remembered them and i said i did and the reason they were calling me is because they had suspicions about things this guy was doing with his daughter. I don't know where that ever ended up going, but I give you that illustration to say: what if we hadn't uh, made sure that our policy was fulfilled? What might, what could have happened with something like that? So we will uh, make sure that we Im- implement the uh, principles that are in that policy. Okay. All right. Next page, page 27, Commitment to Biblical Counseling. And when we say uh, Biblical Counseling, we choose our words carefully. Uh, we don't say Christian Counseling. It should be a perfectly fine phrase, Christian Counseling. But we, we say Biblical Counseling. And the reason is, is because Biblical Counseling is seeking to emphasize the source of the counsel. The counsel comes from The Bible that's what we mean by biblical counseling. Christian counseling should mean the same thing. You would think if someone's giving you Christian counseling it's coming from the Bible. But take my word for it. Nah, that's not necessarily the case and often not the case as a matter of fact. So a Christian counselor often simply means counseling dispensed by a Christian. Not that the counsel is coming from the Bible. And those are and those are not the same thing. So when we say biblical counseling then that's that's what we do and so if someone comes to us uh, we will give them counsel from the bible about whatever the the situation is you see at the top of page 27 i myself am convinced my brothers and sisters that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with knowledge and competent to and that word instruct uh, is sometimes translated counsel competent to counsel one another there's actually a book written in 1970 by that title competent to counsel it comes from that comes from that very verse uh, now what if somebody comes for counseling and they've got uh, and they've got issues that might require medication or something like that well then uh, and, and we certainly have that happen so uh, there there can be brain disorders there can be chemical imbalances there can be all kinds of things going on with people and when that's the case then I refer them to people who can who can do that So I don't want you to get the idea that we, like some, there are some biblical counselors who believe that every behavioral issue is a sin issue and that there really are no such things as brain disorders and all that. There really are people who believe that. So they would never refer someone to a psychiatrist, for example. But we don't believe that. We believe there are such things. And uh, when there are or or there's a question as to whether there is, then we refer accordingly. Sometimes we uh, farm out for help on even non-psychiatric issues. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, A woman in our church just finished counseling via Skype with the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation in Philadelphia. And they put out something called the Journal of Biblical Counseling, which is a terrific journal. I subscribe to it. And they have staff counselors there, but they're all in Philadelphia. And they do counseling every day for people, but you got to be in Philadelphia. So I contacted them. So why do we got to be in Philadelphia? You know, or Skype. <laughs> so would you guys do Skype? And they did, and they did Skype for this lady. My wife and I had uh, had counseled with her many times. We've been able to help her, but she's had some very traumatic things go on in her life in the past, and they continue to haunt her and so on. And we thought. Uh, Another voice might be of help to her. And she had six sessions with them, and it turned out to be a very good very good thing for her. And uh, getting ready to start another one of those Skype sessions with, for another lady in the church. So, you know, we do uh, everything we can and then uh, refer to others if need be. Okay? All right, page 28. Commitment to confidentiality. So somebody comes for counsel, and they're... bearing their heart about what's going on in their life and maybe things that they've done. There's a commitment to confidentiality for that, with exceptions. And we want you to know what the exceptions are. So you see these bullets there? When a leader is uncertain how to counsel a person about a particular problem, needs to seek advice from other leaders, or if the person attends another church, from the leaders of that church. Now, in that case, we would seek your permission to do that. So if, you know, if, I'm, if I'm counseling with you and I say, you know what, I need to get somebody else's advice on this, is it okay if I talk to somebody? So I'd get your permission to do, to do that. But then the next one is when a person who disclosed the information or any other person is in imminent danger of serious harm unless others intervene. In that case, I won't ask for your permission because if I have reason to believe you're in imminent danger of harm or you've threatened to kill somebody else, Particularly me, <laughs> then I'm going to tell somebody. I want to tell somebody about that. Okay. Uh, now we, we we joke. Uh, we we do have a security team here, and uh, I'm very glad that we do. They're walking the halls as I speak. Did I mention that last week? That we have okay. They're walking the halls as I speak. So there's always a couple of guys on the halls, and um, I'm very glad for our children's sake and all of that. And there have been a handful of times where somebody just really gets hacked off and you don't know what they're going to do. And uh, so I've just had to tell the security team, heads up. And thankfully there hasn't been an incident, but you read about those kinds of things in the, in the papers sometimes. Okay. Third bullet, when a person refuses to repent of sin, and it becomes necessary to promote repentance through accountability and redemptive church discipline. Now this starts to get to Edie's question. What do you do if someone sins, but they're not willing to deal with it? And that is what's called church discipline. That starts on page 29. We'll get there in a minute. But it also means at a certain stage of church discipline, there is a violation of confidentiality, or at least some confidentiality. Because, as you will, will see in a bit, if it goes to the most extreme stage, the church itself has to get both when someone won't repent. Okay, So that's what that is about. Fourth bullet, when a person refuses to repent of sin and seeks to circumvent redemptive church discipline, by attending another assembly, which is unaware of the process begun at our church. Now, do you guys understand what that's saying? All right, so uh, you sin. All right, let's make it I sin. Okay, So I sin, and I'm in the process of being disciplined by the, the church. And the process, as we'll see in Matthew 18, is you go to the person. If they hear you, then you've won your brother, and it's over. If not, you take two or three others. If they hear them, it's over. If not, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if they won't hear the church, then you have to assume this person's not a believer. That's what Jesus says. All right, so say I'm in the midst of that, and I see where this is going, but I want to hang on to my sin. And I'm not going to repent, and I see where it's going, so you can't fire me, I quit. So I circumvent this by then leaving, and I go to some other church now who knows nothing about it. So we're letting you know up front you're not going to circumvent church discipline. Okay? Now, how do we have you do that? You make a commitment to that that you'll see in a minute. And then lastly, when leaders are required by law to report suspected abuse. Uh, So there is, some of you are familiar with this, probably in your jobs. uh, Teachers in schools are mandatory reporters, they're called. And uh, so if I know about uh, abuse uh, that's uh, taking place, then there are certain circumstances where I have to report that. There is coverage for uh, you, you've heard of attorney-client privilege uh, everybody's familiar with that you may not be familiar with the clergy penitent privilege but it's the same thing yeah? and what's said in the confessional we don't have a confessional but what's said in my office is is privileged under certain circumstances so but the law speaks to that and we have an attorney that we refer to whenever we have questions about, is this something I need to disclose or, or not disclose? Okay? All right. Then, page 29, commitment to accountability and church discipline. So what do you do? Somebody's violating God's Word. Uh, well, that's what part of what church discipline means about. Now, the first few pages are not corporate congregational church discipline. They're about uh, interpersonal discipline. But first... Page 29 says that accountability and discipline are actually signs of God's love. You know, God says that in Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 13. He says that the Lord chastens those whom he loves. And so discipline is a matter of love if it is done right and for for the right reasons. But then on page 30, most corrective discipline is private, personal, and informal. So most of the time, the discipline takes place between two people. You know, somebody sinned, you go to them, and there's reconciliation that takes place. And that's what we mean by that. Most of the time it's that. It's private, it's personal and formal. But, top of page 31, it may involve the entire church. And why would it involve the entire church? Well, it would involve the entire church because um, because the person is unrepentant. So they've been gone to by an individual, and then two or three others And then they refuse to repent, and then Jesus says in Matthew 18, tell it to the church. So it would only get to the church after it's gone through those stages. Now let me stop here for a minute. And uh, what kinds of things would go to the church stage? What kinds of sin would go that far? And many people believe that the things that would go to the church would be sins of a particular magnitude, you know, like big stuff. That's not, that's not our belief here, that the only things that are candidates to go to the church are so-called big things. Jesus doesn't make that distinction in Matthew 18. He doesn't say if somebody does something like really bad, if your, if your brother sins, that's what he says. So potentially any unrepentant sin could go before the church. You say, wow, there's a lot of sinning going on in a given week. Uh, And in a given church, that could be a lot of stuff coming up before the church. But here's why most of the time it's only big, so-called big things that go before the church, because those are the only things that become known. Most of the sin you commit and I commit, we don't know. I mean, they're one to thoughts, they're words, you know, they're things that we don't know. So obviously they never come to that level. The things that normally become known are things like somebody's leaving their spouse, or, you know, somebody's got public drunkenness problem or something like that. So I'm just letting you know, though, that even though that's practically the reason, the kinds of things that are dealt with, there's no biblical reason that those will be the only things that are dealt with. If somebody is a serial gossip in the church and they're sowing discord in the church and they're confronted about that and they continue to do that, that potentially would be something that could go before the, before the mm-hmm. church. Okay. So it's not just adultery or murder or drunkenness. You know, It could be something like that as well. But here's the other thing you need to know. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins, go him. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. But if not, he says, take two or three others. But then he says something very important. He says, take two or three others so that... And then there's a quote in Matthew 18... And the quote is, so that every word will be established by two or three witnesses. So take two or three others so that every word will be established. And that's in quotation marks in your Bible. It's a quote from the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy 19. And if you were to go back to Deuteronomy 19, that two or three witnesses thing is in the law, God's law, on how to run things in the nation. And that section is about how valid evidence can be brought to convict someone it's got to be by two or three witnesses so a person could not be convicted just on the word of one person so here's what that means the only things that could come before the church then are things that are known by more than one person and that there's evidence for the accusation that has been made so that narrows down the things that could come before the church one, there are things that have to be known at all, and most sin is private and personal and all that. But then even if it is known, if you sin against me, let's say, or let's say you, you know, again, I'll do it. I mean, you saw me drunk. That won't happen because I don't drink. But but you saw me drunk. And you confront me about it. And, uh, you know, you didn't take a picture of me, you know, a video of me not being able to walk the line. <laughs> So you don't have any evidence like that. It's just your word against mine. Yeah. So it's your word against mine, and I'm lying about it. You know, that thing can't go any further. You go, wow, so that individual is going to get away with that. That's what people think. And my answer is, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Okay? I don't feel obligated to chase people down and find out what their sin is. The Lord has a way of bringing it out in his timing. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this happen in the case of uh, couples. And one of the spouses fears that the spouse is seeing someone else, but they can't prove it. And I have given this counsel over and over. God can reveal things in his time. And you don't have to go chasing them down. You don't have to hire a private eye. You don't have to. God can reveal things. And I, I can't tell you how many times it's happened. In his time, God reveals what's going on. Okay, So... If there are not two or three witnesses to what happened, if it's just one person's word against another, it can't move forward in a church discipline process. Okay, All right. So, but let's say it does. Let's say that now it is moving forward and there are two or three witnesses. Uh, it is uh, substantiated that this person has done something in clear violation of God's word. That's the other thing I should say. It's got to be in clear violation of God's word not a disagreement, not something I think might be, or you think might be. It's got to be a clear violation of God's word. And that's why I'm using these examples of public drunkenness or those kinds of things. We've had, with all that, when you winnow it down, we've only had two occasions where it got to the church level in 14 years. Uh, Now, sin being what it is, it'll happen again in the future. Um, So you just need to be aware of that. But, Remember that thing about not circumventing the process? You can't fire me, I quit. All right, page 32. So the process is going forward. It um, It is substantiated. And then the offender decides, I'll just quit. First full paragraph on page 32. We realize that our natural human response to correction often is to hide or run away to avoid falling into this age-old trap and to strengthen our church's ability to rescue us if we're caught in sin, we agree not to run away from this church to avoid corrective discipline. We affirm that membership is transferred, not resigned, as it's God's expectation that we be in recognized fellowship with this church now. Everybody know what that means? One, if you're in that process, you don't go, I'll just go to another church. Um, one, now you'll never get here. You know, Lord willing, none of you'll ever get here. But if it if it happened, that's the commitment you're making. Okay. And and further, uh, you don't resign church membership. You transfer it. Uh, because God's expectation is that you are in. We are to be in recognized fellowship with a with a church. Now, some of you, your situation may be that, well, one, I didn't know that, or I didn't know where to go to church, or we've been looking for a church, and meanwhile our membership at X church has lapsed. Okay, so you, you find yourself as not a member of a church. I'll tell you how you would join our church if you decide to do that. But the way it should go is, if you God brings you here, and then sometime later calls you to another church, you transfer your membership to another Bible-believing church. And you take time to do that. Um, If you relocate, obviously, you would have to to do that. But you don't simply simply resign membership. Membership in the church is a congregational matter. If you decide to join our church, we'll bring you up front. Some of you have seen us on Sunday mornings do this. I'll introduce you. I'll say, we've heard your testimony of salvation. This person's jumped through all the hoops. We make them jump through to be a member. And we're recommending them for uh, membership. And then the church votes on it. Now, the church is taking the leadership team's recommendation on it, uh, and they vote on it. But it is a congregational matter the church actually has to vote on. It. And likewise, when people when people leave, it's to be a congregational matter as as well. So I, I point that out because it's a very important point. Here's how that came up. We had a guy six, seven years ago, and um, he was having an affair. And it was that same deal, denial, denial, wife suspects, it'll come out, it comes out. So he's having an affair. It is substantiated, and we are calling him to repentance, and he doesn't want to He doesn't want to repent. And he then just sends a I resign email. Just one line. I hereby resign my membership. Well, this is his way of getting around that. We didn't have this at the time. And this is a guy who uh, has a litigious bent. You know what I mean by that? He'll sue you. And that was that was actually one of the things that caused us as a leadership team to say, moving forward, when people join our church, we need to lay we need to lay those kinds of things out to folks so that those are very clear and in writing, and then they uh, then they sign that. All right. That is the commitments that you make to uh, become part of CBC. Page 35. Page 34, we invite you to become a member, but then if you decide to, what do I do next? That's what's on page 35. First, make a decision to join a family of believers, whether it's this one, but I'm absolutely convinced, guys and gals, I'm not convinced this is the church for all of you because I have no idea, but make a commitment to join a church. And if it's not going to be this one, join then another one. And for some, this is a difficult step, we say. There are many reasons for this, but a common objection, often voiced by well-intended people, is why bother joining? Isn't membership just a man-made device? Where is membership in the Bible? So if you've never thought about that, or if you wonder, why should I sign on the dotted line and become a member, then Appendix B is for you, okay? And you you can read that. But then having decided, yeah, you know what, we do need to be part of a church, we do need to join a church, then consider whether this is the church God would have you join. And if you believe that God would have you commit to serve him and grow here, here are the four qualifications. You have to be a believer so we would hear your testimony of salvation, that you've come to Christ, we being uh, some from our leadership team. And then, secondly, you have to be baptized by immersion. Now, the by immersion part is redundant because baptism is immersion. The word baptism means to dip, to immerse. But we put by immersion there in case it's unclear to anybody if you, because you know baptism is used for sprinkling as a baby or something. So if, if, you've, if you've had that happen as an infant, that's not baptism as the New Testament describes it. So therefore, you would need to be baptized. You also need to be supportive of our statement of faith. Our statement of faith is Appendix A in this notebook. And we choose that word supportive uh, on purpose as you read through our statement of faith you might go through there and go you know there's there's, there's, there's something I'm not sure or I'm, I don't agree with you. now our assumption is you don't want to join our church if there's something big you don't agree with okay? and we've never had anybody join our church who didn't agree with our cardinal doctrines but let's say for example you weren't sure about or you didn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church you guys, anybody, some of you probably know what I'm talking about that's in our doctrinal statement. I believe the Bible does teach that, that prior to the seven-year tribulation, the church will be uh, caught caught up to use the Bible's language, rapture. So that's in our doctrinal statement. But you could join our church without believing it. And that's why we say supportive. Here's what that means. If there's something in our doctrinal statement you don't believe, you're not going to go around and try to convince people not to believe it. And if you were to ever teach or lead something in our church, you would not teach contrary to what our doctrinal statement says. That's what we mean by support, okay? And then fourthly, a church member must consent to our church covenant, including the relational commitments we just went over, as explained in in this lesson. So steps, what do I do if I want to join? If you'd like to join, you can see me to set a time to discuss the process because depending on where you are, what your situation is, it may mean a transfer from another church, it may mean you need to be baptized, uh, so see me about that one good way to see me about it is to send me an email or you can just talk to me but send me an email i've got business cards with my email address on them but that's a good way uh, for us to set up a time and then uh, fill out the membership application now that's page 37 it's just one page <clears throat> and it's very it's really very simple um But you would fill that out and turn that in. And you can turn that in at the information center, and they will put that in my mail slot, or you can just give it to me directly. But fill that out and turn it in if you want to start the process of becoming a member. Okay. But then on page 35, we say, thirdly, you sign the church covenant, and that's on page 39. And you see on page 39, there's a signature portion at the bottom. And the first four points there are a church covenant that was composed about 150 years ago. And Baptist churches have been using it for about 150 years. It's a very eloquent statement of things you're committing to, covenanting together to do. But notice the fifth one. We acknowledge that we have read the relational commitments of this church, and we agree to live by them. Those are those commitments that we just went went over. And then you would, you would sign that. Now, lastly, what are the, uh, uh, back on page 35, Turn in that membership application and sign the church covenant. Meet with the leadership to give a testimony of your salvation and answer any questions about your application. What are the responsibilities? Responsibilities are agree to and fulfill the obligations of the covenant, but then notice, bottom of page 35, responsible to serve in the local church. So when you join our church, then sometime after that, you know, not, not that day, not the next week, we'll give you a little breathing room. But, but, for example, the last four weeks, uh, two doors down, there's been a new members class going on. If you join our church, next time we do the new members class, you'll be in there for four weeks. And part of what they do in the new members class is they give you a uh, – this is after you joined. Now you're in the new members class. And part of what they do in those four weeks is they give you a form. It's called Your Fit. And you fill that form out that describes what you've done, what you like to do, what you're able to do, your passions, your skills, your abilities. And then we put that in our database, and then we try to find a fit for you in ministry in the church. So then our community service coordinator, he's like the placement ministry guy, he would come to you and say, hey, you said you like to do this. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a position for you to consider. And of course, you don't have to do it, but that's the idea. But you're committing when you join the church that, as I am able, I'm going to use my gifts and abilities to serve in the church. All right, I'm done. Ball is in your court. So remember, first week I said, and anyway, the fact, when we announced all this, we said it's for information, and we won't hassle you, and there's no obligation. Well, we mean all of that. So here's what that means: I'm not contacting you, and unless you're here for like two years, uh, you know, a year, maybe a year you're here for a year and you like you haven't joined and you haven't gone to another church, then I might come to you and go, look, are you going to join or are you going to go to another church? All right. But I'm not going to follow up with you. You need to now consider what we've gone through. If you got any questions, and then if you want to follow through, fill out the membership application, and we'll go from there. Okay? If you got any questions, let me know. Thanks. Have a great week.